Matthew 6, 25-34 Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more, more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. So in 1994, uh, two well-known psychologists, you'd probably recognize the name, I think, uh, created and promoted a way of life. And they really kind of developed a methodology that promised to free people from, I think, what probably most of us have experienced or do experience, sort of worry, off, you know, at different levels of the spectrum, sort of low-grade anxiety, but then also acute and heavy and crippling anxiety. And their approach was, it was really born out of one of these therapists' struggles with body image, uh, sort of his constant difficulty, trial, struggle, and worry over other people's perceptions of him and opinions of him. But also, on the other hand, their experience with dealing with a number of clients uh, who had a lot to worry about, uh, and probably things that many of us here might be familiar with, loss of family, loss of home, financial insecurity, uh, the uncertainty of the future. And these two gurus even developed a phrase uh, by which people could actually sort of soothe their anxiety um, and live into the freedom of a worry-free life. And the phrase actually came from, uh, Swa- the Swa- from Swahili, and when translated basically, basically meant, translated kind of sort of literally, meant no worries. Of course, I'm talking about the 1994 classic, The Lion King, and the well-known and beloved Timon and Pumbaa, right? Their beloved hit, Hakuna Matata, which I've had to watch on basically repeat with my son over the last six months. This is what I have to draw from. So, um, I think when we get to passages, you know, Trinity, you're going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and when we come to passages like this, if you if you are familiar with the Bible, you've probably read this, you've heard this. There are passages in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, that we often hear, and I read them. My experience is I read them, I hear them, but oftentimes I. 
I tend to not really listen. I tend to tune out or I tend to miss here. I tend to be attracted to or latch on to particular phrases or words. Uh, and the temptation is, or sort of where that leads me, is I end up mishearing what Jesus is actually saying. Uh, I end up mishearing what Jesus is, is communicating here in passages like Matthew 6. Um, and I think for some of us, there's, a, there's this, uh, some of us, we tend to, g- to sort of gravitate towards Jesus being this ancient, wise uh, guru, this sort of wise rabbi who teaches us kind of helpful principles to deal with life. Or, on the other hand, and this is more maybe my, my struggle, I tend to hear Jesus giving me this kind of harsh command or this rebuke about anxiety or worry. Uh, and I tend to sort of gravitate towards him being this rule giver who uh, sort of gives us this moralistic way of life uh, that you know I see maybe some other people practicing and I say, man, that seems sort of impossible for me on the one hand, but also just not that exciting of a way of, of, of life. And I think in this passage, in Matthew 6, Jesus is giving us good principles. I think he's also giving us rules to follow. Uh, but he's inviting you, he's inviting me this morning into something that's far greater, far better than all that. And what I hope to show you in the next couple of minutes is what Jesus is inviting you, what he's calling you into um, through his words here in the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to say, say a couple things. First, I want to say, Jesus cares. Jesus cares about our struggles, our issues, especially when they come to things like anxiety and worry. Think about this for a moment. In, in Jesus' most extraordinary sermon, I mean, this is Jesus' most well-known, most beloved sort of set of teaching here in Matthew 5 through 7. In this most extraordinary sermon, he, in a sense, almost pauses right in the middle of this when he's talking about things as far-reaching as human identity, uh, morality, human destiny, uh, his interpretation and read on the entire Old Testament, final final judgment, social justice, spirituality, human relationships, and human community. He finds the space, he pauses, in a sense, in the middle of the sermon to talk about worry, to talk about something very ordinary, very uh, sort of unexciting and unextraordinary. Um, he talks about our anxiety. That's remarkable. Uh, and it, it indicates to me at least one truth. Why Jesus cares. He cares about our struggle. He cares about our anxiety. He cares about the issues in life that sor- sort of press in on us. But uh, he all, I think that by implication also means that following him He's speaking to his disciples here. The crowds are listening, but he's speaking to his disciples. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, this means that following Jesus doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, it doesn't entail that you have to pretend like everything is okay. Uh, there are things in your life. There are stresses in your life. Uh, there are real significant reasons to worry. Jesus is not denying that. Uh, he's, I mean, look at the very end of the passage uh, that Lisa read, right? Each day, uh, verse 34, every day has its own trouble. Another way to translate that is every day has its own evil. Uh, there are things that are troublesome in the world. There are things to, 
in a sense, that, that make us worry, right? That cause us to worry, that are big things. Sometimes they're little things. What are examples? Um, here, I'll just give you one. I woke up this morning, walked outside, we're about 30 minutes away from leaving, and our car has a flat tire. Um, those are real things to worry about, right? Um, Jesus is not denying that. He's saying, we don't have to pretend like everything is okay. There are real significant evils in the world, things that trouble us, things that bother us. And I think what that communicates to me is that it's good to know that Jesus isn't just some sort of ivory tower academic. Uh, He's not some sort of celestial sage that is just giving us helpful principles from on high. What he's actually, who he actually is, is a first century poor, homeless rabbi who knows the stresses of life, uh, who knows there are troublesome things in the world. And for me, that's encouraging. It means that Jesus has walked uh, in my shoes. He's somebody who's sympathetic, who can be empathetic with me. He gets it. Um, right, Jesus gets it. We sang in a couple of the songs, a couple of the songs we've already sung have alluded to this, but First Peter uh, chapter 5, right? Peter writes, cast all your anxieties on him. Cast all your anxieties on God. Why? Because he cares for you. And I don't know what your, I don't know what the stresses are. I don't know what the things are in your life that may be making you anxious this morning or this past week, but I can guarantee you two things. Jesus knows them. He's walked through experiences just like that. And he cares. He cares about that. He cares about that. He's, he's, he's spoken to it. In his most famous epic sermon, Jesus addresses uh, things that we all struggle with. That's encouraging to me. Um, but he's not, it's, the truth of this passage is not just that he's empathetic and that he cares. He also gives you good reason not to worry. Uh, this is the second thing I want to I say this morning, that Jesus actually, he asks you, he invites you to consider, to think about, to, in a sense, argue in your mind uh, good reasons why you should not worry. What are some of those reasons? Uh, before I get to those reasons, let me just, a quick sidebar here. Um, I think Jesus is addressing a kind of low-grade, everyday, ordinary anxiety. Uh, sort of the ordinary worries of life that we have. He talks about a couple of examples, things like food and clothing. I don't think it, he's limiting it just to those topics. Um, but I also don't think that Jesus is talking about what I think we would call today a kind of a clinical depression anxiety. Um, I think Christians can learn from and should learn from psychology and uh, the medical community and even philosophy to help diagnose and treat heavy and deep and acute anxiety. I think God in his common grace has gifted many people with ways to address and treat that. Um, but I think what Jesus is doing, so he's not, I don't think talking about that kind of deep, acute anxiety that particular people do wrestle with for a variety of reasons Um, But he does give us, I think, a spiritual antidote or um, reasons that we all, that he speaks into all of our experiences, wherever we are on that spectrum 
of worry and anxiety. I think Jesus, what he has to say here, does address every one of us, no matter where you fall on that. Here's some reasons. So Jesus, think about this. Jesus is asking you to consider. He's saying, look, look around, consider. That, that word, look at the birds of the heavens, is actually a, a word that means think deeply about. Think logically about. Give some serious thought to this. And there's a couple of reasons that Jesus gives. Uh, first is this. Consider the world. Consider the beauty of nature. Consider the majesty of nature. Uh, and more than that, consider the power behind that beauty that you see. Consider the power that's behind that beauty. Jesus is speaking. He's not just coming up with sermon illustrations in his office. Uh, he's out in the fields. He's out in the hills with his disciples, and he's just drawing from the things around him that he's, that he's observing. He's speaking in outdoors and reflecting on the beauty of creation, right? Uh, and it's actually fascinating. Uh, many studies have shown that going outdoors, uh, exposing yourself to natural beauty is actually a way of reducing stress and preventing the kind of anxiety that I think many of us uh, deal with. He's inviting us to go outside and reflect on nature and reflect on the power behind nature. Listen to Annie Dillard, who um, wrote a a Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She writes, she's reflecting on nature. It's a meditation, really, on nature. And she writes, the creator goes off on one wild specific tangent after another or millions simultaneously with an exuberance that would seem to be unwarranted and with an abandoned energy sprung from an unfathomable fount. What is going on here? The point of the dragonfly's terrible lip, the giant water bug, bird song, or the beautiful dazzle and flash of sunlighted minnows is not that it all fits together like clockwork, for it doesn't particularly, not even inside the goldfish bowl. But it all flows so freely wild like the creek that it all surges in such free, fringed tangle. Freedom is the world's water and weather, the world's nourishment freely given, its soil and sap, and the creator loves pizzazz. I love that line. The creator loves pizzazz. Jesus is inviting us to reflect on nature and say, What's behind all that? What's behind the world that we can observe and experience? Jesus is saying there's a power behind that. There's a God. There's a personal triune God who knows, knows your experience, knows the difficulty of life. Let me suggest to you that that is a, a, a good reason, a good reason not to worry. Jesus says, look at the birds of the heavens. Uh, look at the flowers of the field. The, the word there is not necessarily flowers, but could mean something, uh, something as trivial as weeds, the weeds of the field. If God delights, if he takes pleasure in creating something like that and sustaining it through his providence, through his power, through his goodness, Jesus is saying there's a power there. Are you in touch with it? Have you connected with him, this power of behind the beauty that you see. The second reason is he says, consider the futility of worry. Who by, who by worrying can add a single span to his life? Literally, uh, Jesus is envisioning sort of the, the journey of life being consisting of a number of steps. And he's saying, you can't even take another step uh, by yourself, in your own strength. 
you are, you are fundamentally a dependent creature. Literally, worry does nothing for you. Uh, I, love, um, I love the sort of example of this in, in Pixar's classic Finding Nemo, right? You have Marlin, the, the dad fish, and he's neurotic. He's sort of like this sort of anxiety-ridden helicopter parent. Uh, and all of his anxiety, all of his worry does nothing to actually save or keep Nemo from harm. In fact, it's actually his anxiety and his worry that drives uh, Nemo away in which he finally gets lost, right? Uh, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that at its root, anxiety is this desire to control something that you cannot control. It's this desire to master something of which you, you have no power over. But Jesus is exposing a, something greater beyond that reality, so that Every time we experience anxiety or worry, what our heart is telling us is, you are not in control of the situation. But that seems to presuppose something that we had before that worry, before that anxiety hit us, we were sort of somehow living in this illusion, uh, this dream world that we were somehow in control of our circumstances, of our work, of our family, of our finances. Anxiety exposes this myth, this illusion, this lie that we have been living in control, that we are in charge, uh, that we are governing our life uh, by ourselves. And Jesus says when worry happens, it not only does nothing for you, but it exposes that illusion, uh, that myth, that lie that you are in control. Jesus is saying you're not. You're not in control. But he does, he does give us someone who is. His third reason is that he wants us, he's inviting us to consider when we're thinking about worry, thinking about our life, he asks us to consider instead the character and nature of the Heavenly Father. That's what I meant earlier when, when I was talking about our, our, sometimes this temptation that we have, or at least, at least I experience, to mishear Jesus. I listen to passages like this and I hear Jesus saying, do not worry, do not be anxious. And what Jesus is saying is, do not worry, do not be anxious. But he's also giving us something far greater. He's saying, have you considered your father? This whole passage is sort of, it's all tied together. It's all uh, shot through with this language of the characteristics, the attributes of the Father that we have. And who is that Father? What does he say about this Father that we have? First, he says that we matter to this Father. This Father knows us and loves us. Consider the birds of the heavens. If God feeds them, if God cares for them, how much more do you matter than they? You have a father to whom you matter. You are significant. Right? I, I mean, I'm a dad now. The, my kids in some, and maybe this is somewhat not necessarily the best uh, way to parent, but in some sense, my kids form almost the center of sort of my life. I think about them all the time, right? My mind is constantly goes back to how can I care for them? How can I provide them? In some sense, that's child-centered parenting, right? But in another sense, it's because my heart is drawn to them. They matter to me. 
They fill my mind. Jesus is saying, you have a father whose mind is full of you. He thinks about you. He cares for you. He loves you. We read passages like this and we say, the father, right? Jesus says, he clothes the flowers of the field, the weeds of the field. How much more will he clothe you? We have a father who doesn't just promise to dress us, doesn't just promise to clothe us, but to go above and beyond that, right? Jesus compares the flowers of the field, their dress being far greater than that of Solomon. What Jesus is saying is you have a father who won't just dress you, he will dazzle you. He will cover you in garments of glorious beauty. The promise is bigger than just God will take care of you. God will address your needs. It's far greater than that. It's far bigger than that. The promise is why do you worry about clothing? God is going to dress you in the glory that he experiences, the glory that he has Why do you worry about health? God is going to raise your body to eternal resurrection life. Why do you worry about money? God has promised, Jesus promises in this Sermon on the Mount to give you the inheritance of the earth. Why do you worry about other people's perceptions of you? Why are you anxious about people's opinions over you? You've been embraced and accepted and adopted and brought into a forever family, a kingdom of the Father's everlasting love. See, that's what makes uh, sort of that neurotic style of parenting, that anxious style of parenting that you see in someone like Marlon in Finding Nemo. Uh, At the very same time, you see Marlon, and he's relentlessly on this pursuit of his lost son. You have a father. Do you know you have a father who pursues you extravagantly more than Marlon pursues Nemo. He relentlessly and obsessively pursues you. He's mindful of him, mindful of you, mindful of me. As you're brooding over the worries of life, the things that are sort of tangling up your heart and your life, whether they're finances or work or school or education or family, While you're brooding over that, you have a father, the Old Testament says, you have a parent that hovers over you, that broods over you, that watches over you, that loves you. You matter to him. Jesus invites you to consider that. Ask, use that, uh, what one author says, that sort of gospel argumentation, gospel logic. Use that on your heart. When anxiety starts to creep in, when you're thinking about things and you notice, I've been thinking about this five different times today. Apply that gospel logic. Jesus asks you to consider, to think about, to argue with yourself. And he gives you good reasons to do that. Consider the reasons you have not to worry. And then last, Jesus calls you into something far far greater, far better. He calls you actually into a kingdom. He calls you into a revolution. That's the, an- that's the fundamental antidote that he gives to his followers, right? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus invites you to seek a kingdom, a new kind of humanity, a new world, a new way of being in the world. 
See, Israel at this time had a king. Their king was Caesar. Uh, they had an, a, a, a someone ruling over them. They were, a, in a sense, a part of a kingdom. And what Jesus say, is saying here is, let me, let me paint for you a new way of living, a new way of life, a flourishing way of life. The antidote to anxiety is the advancement, the seeking of that kingdom, the seeking of that way of being human. It's a kingdom that calls poverty, happiness, and blessedness. It's a kingdom that celebrates the freedom of moral purity. It's a a kingdom that exalts lowliness and humility. It's a kingdom that encourages the brokenhearted, that calls for peace and justice and compassion towards others, even our enemies. It offers a place for the marginalized, the outcast, the disenfranchised. See, this is so much bigger than just a command, do not worry, or a rule, do not be anxious. Do you see that? Jesus is calling you into something far bigger, far better than just rules. Of course there are rules, but it's much more than that. It's a new way of being human. It's a single-minded wholeness. That's the righteousness that he's describing there. It's not just moral purity, although it consists of that. That righteousness that he's calling into is a wholeness, an integrity of soul and mind and heart and body. I was thinking this week, what am I like when I'm anxious? Think for a moment, what, what, what are the symptoms? What, what do you experience when you're anxious? I'm irritable. I brood over things. I'm often short-tempered. I can't sleep. I can't focus. I can't work. I sweat. Right? Or sort of I experience not just this internal, internal conversation with myself about the things that may happen in the future and go wrong, uh, but my, mo- my body itself begins to sort of break down and experience uh, the anxiety that my mind and heart are working, working through, right? Jesus is saying, um, your mind, your heart, your body don't work well. You're not experiencing the righteousness, the wholeness that I have planned for you that I want for you. Don't you want to be free from that? Jesus is calling you into a greater righteousness, an integrity of yourself, a singleness of mind and heart that's characterized by wholeness. See, you could listen to Jesus and you could hear him saying, get it together, get your act together, don't worry, don't be anxious. What's wrong with you? Or you could hear Jesus saying, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when your mind and your soul and your heart is divided between the now where your father is caring for you and loving you and brooding over you and that uncertain future that you have imagined in your head in which you're an orphan without a father. Jesus is saying, it breaks my heart to see that. I don't want you to experience that. I want a wholeness. I want you to have a single-minded purpose and direction. Remember that passage in Luke 10, maybe some of you are familiar, where Mary and Martha, two sisters, have invited Jesus into their home. And Martha is anxious. She's worried. She's neurotic. She's concerned about a great many things. And Jesus says to her, he invites her to focus on one thing, himself. He says, Mary has chosen the better thing. 
and I won't take it from her. Jesus is inviting you to that kind of wholeness, not to frantically be worrying about everything in your life, but to a kind of wholeness where you're living in the now, knowing, believing, trusting that you have a father who loves you, who delights in you. Right, Jesus is giving you a command. Do not worry, do not be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life. But he's also giving you great resources to overcome that, to break free from that. I love what uh, St. Augustine says. He says in one of his passages, he says he's reflecting on God's commands. And he says, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Jesus is saying here, seek the kingdom. This is my command to you. Seek the kingdom. Do not worry, but seek the kingdom. So what does it mean to seek the kingdom? How does Jesus seek the kingdom? Read through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus seeks the kingdom by having this wholeness, this integrity of person in which he's constantly submitting himself to the Father's will, to the Father's protection, to the Father's delight in him. He's prioritizing the kingdom and the values of the kingdom in his own life and in his own heart. So what's the priority? What's the center of your life? What are you chasing after? What are you desiring? What are the things that in your heart and in your mind are edging God out of place in your heart? Making him less and less of a priority. Ask yourself, what is it that I want or need or expect or am demanding? What are the things that I fear that if I lost them, my life wouldn't be worth living? What's preoccupying my downtime when you're on the commute home, when you're lying in bed at the end of the day, when you're sipping on uh, coffee in those five minutes before your kids are up out of bed and demanding breakfast? What are you anxious about? What are you worrying about? Jesus says often if, you tr- if, you tr- if you're tracing that back, you're going to find that you are seeking something. You're desiring something. You're pursuing and chasing after something that usually is maybe even a good thing, but it becomes the priority, the center of your life, the kingdom that you are trying to build. I came across an NPR interview uh, earlier this week with um, this guy, Clint Bunting. Uh, he's from Wisconsin, and he's sort of an he's ultralight backpacker. He's backpacked over 14,000 miles with just an eight-pound uh, backpack, which is incredi- pretty incredible. And what he says, I don't, rec- I don't necessarily recommend that, but uh, what he says is, uh, one, it's sort of this throwaway line in the interview, but he's, he says what people tend to do is they tend to pack their fears, which is definitely true of me. I'm always packing like pounds of food into my backpack, right? Because I'm, I'm afraid of being stranded out there and being hungry. And I thought, what a great metaphor for life that we are on this journey and we tend to pack the things in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, We tend to pack the things in in our life that we're fearful of losing. What are you packing that is indicating maybe where my heart is placing its priorities? Think about this to close. Jesus Jesus modeled this perfectly. He wasn't someone who was anxious. He wasn't someone who was living in this uncertain future and then irritable and depressed and 
worrisome and short-tempered. He modeled this perfectly. He wasn't anxious about the unknown. He wasn't anxious about the future. He wasn't anxious about all the different paths that life could take. But there was one moment, and Matthew gives us an indication of this later in the gospel, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus experienced, and there's several words to describe it, but a kind of severe mental and emotional distress. This agonizing and heavy and burdensome suspense at an ordeal that was coming just hours later, the ordeal of the cross, in which he would, in some sense, be cut off from his father, in some sense, orphaned from his father. God would forsake Jesus on the cross into the unknown. And Jesus experienced this heavy, agonizing distress, mental and emotional, to the point that he sweated drops of blood. You know, we come to a passage like this, and one of the first things my mind goes to, maybe your mind went here, is, okay, Jesus promises food and clothing to his followers, but certainly I know or have observed or know about Christians, followers of Jesus, who haven't been given even the necessities of life who these things, they seem to have not been taken care of by the Heavenly Father. That sort of philosophical question of theodicy. Where is God in all of this? When the things that I'm actually worried about, my worst case scenarios actually do come true. Jesus shows, not just by his words, but by his very life, going into the deepest stress, the most acute kind of mental anguish and agony and despair, a God-forsakenness that troubled his soul to death. And he did that so that at the end of the day, all of the worst-case scenarios that you can imagine, all of the worst-case scenarios that you can come up with will ultimately end in hope will ultimately end in happiness, will we'll ultimately end in blessedness. Uh, there's a quote um, that I included uh, towards the beginning of the, of the worship folder where Jen Wilkin, um, from a, a book that I really love, she says, um, she's talking about the sovereignty of God, and she says, my husband always soothes my anxiety by pointing me back to an important question. What's your worst case scenario? When you're anxious, ask yourself, what is my worst case scenario? I love the answer she gives, but let me give you an alternative. When you're thinking about your worst case scenario, this, if you're following Jesus, he's inviting you into a kingdom in which the worst case scenario is that you would be raised to resurrection life and be drawn in into an everlasting kingdom with a father who delights in you. That's the worst case scenario if you're a follower of Jesus. That's what he's inviting you into. That's as bad as it can possibly get. A kingdom of everlasting joy and fulfillment and significance and satisfaction. Because you have a father who delights in you, who loves you, who gave up his own son freely. How much more will he not also give you all things? Let's pray.
Father, thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you for these words in the Sermon on the Mount in which you indicate to us that life is hard, that each day does have trouble, that each day does have evil, and yet you have given us things to consider, things to observe, ways of arguing with our hearts in which we can communicate with our own thoughts and say, why am I worried about this? Why am I anxious about this? I have a father who delights in me. I have a parent who broods over me. Father, thank you for sending us this Jesus, for giving up that which was most precious to you so that we could know that the worst case scenario in all of our anxiety and worry and all the things that could possibly go wrong, we know at the end of the day that you have called us into an everlasting kingdom of joy, of celebration, of life, of an inheritance with Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you went into the deepest kind of emotional and mental and physical distress to show us that you care, to show us that you love us, to free us from anxiety over where our future is oriented. It's oriented towards hope, towards blessedness, towards pleasures forevermore at your right hand. So we ask that you would give us a vision of that this morning that it would fuel our hearts, that would relieve and release us from the anxiety that often plagues our minds, and that we would live into the freedom to which you've called us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.